1 Kings 19, and we'll read that entire chapter. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. That's the prophets of Baal. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Then he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be the king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will, go with, and then I will follow you. 
And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, and took the yoke of oxen, and sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose, and went after Elijah, and assisted him. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 88, stanzas 1 through 4. It's clear that we don't very, um, very commonly sing these laments in the Psalms. It's certainly a, a deep and scriptural emotion, certainly something that would have been in Elijah's mind in the text before us. So our text this morning is 1 Kings 19, that entire chapter. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we work through the passage that's in front of us, 1 Kings 19, let me just lay out right at the beginning where the application from this sermon is going to be coming from, or from this passage. I mentioned a few weeks ago that one of the main reasons the book of Kings was written is so that we as God's people can find ourselves within God's plan. We can find ourselves in the larger story of what God is doing in the world, and we can then recognize his hand also in our own times. And he has his purposes in all events of history, in the big things and in the little things. And Kings helps us to see that, how God is working at the big level, the macro level, as well as the small things, the micro level. He's at work in, in the raising and, and taking down of kings, and he's at work in the feeding of Gentile widows. And we want, as we read the book of Kings, we want to be able to have our eyes trained then to be able to see what God is accomplishing, the kinds of things that God does in the big picture as well as in the little picture, and the tools that God also uses to accomplish his purposes so that then ultimately we can give him the glory and we can find our own place in God's plan. Well, this chapter is certainly one of the micro uh, the, the, the micro picture, part of the small things that God accomplishes. It's different from much of the rest of the book of Kings. Most of the book is about the relationship between God represented by his prophets, God and his people often represented by their kings. But this chapter is like a hiatus in that larger story, and it focuses instead on the relationship between God and his servant, his prophet. What happens when the Lord's servant himself breaks down? When he feels he is burned out and he can't do the work anymore that God has called him to do? When he loses his hope? Well, that's certainly what's happened here with Elijah. And we're going to see that this is one of the most tender and intimate and comforting books or chapters in the book of Kings. This is the chapter for those Christians who have labored for the kingdom of God and who are burning out and despairing and maybe even despondent or losing hope that change is even possible in the world or in the church. Even more, this is a chapter for people who have seen evil in the world, who have seen what Satan is capable of, injustice of that kind that scripture says rots the bones, injustice that takes away your will to live 
seeing the powers that be siding with evil men, seeing innocent men and women condemned and killed and the abused being ignored or sometimes even being punished for trying to seek refuge. This is a chapter then for those who have seen and endured so much evil that they have nothing left but to just cry out, how long, O Lord, till you bring justice? And they're not even sure that they want to keep crying out. So this is a chapter for those who are longing for Satan's kingdom to finally crumble. For those who have seen more evil than they know how to handle, who have also felt that the impact of that evil creeping into their own hearts, finding themselves losing their will to fight, finding themselves filled with cynicism about the church, and perhaps even cynicism about God and his purposes. People who have fought for change, people who love the Lord, who want to see him honored, who want to see the Lord's kingdom built, and yet who have encountered nothing seemingly but resistance. They see destructiveness, destructive patterns in the church, in the lives of God's people, and and they've called them to the Lord, but they see no response. And in fact, they even see more opposition than anything else. These are people then who, who still see so much of Satan's kingdom standing strong even after years of pushing against it and working to cause it to crumble. These are people who have seen evil perpetuated and who are longing then for God's justice, for God to just send fire out of heaven and accomplish that justice. They're, they're people who, who cannot handle that justice any, that injustice any longer. That's certainly what Elijah is experiencing by the time we find him in 1 Kings 19. And after many, many years of, of prophesying to God's people and working for change, he, he seems to have ultimately received no change, no effect at all. And, and so in this chapter, we find that Elijah is just done. He feels he's done working for God. He's done fighting for change. And he, he seems to throw in the towel to just give up. And also then in this chapter, we see God ministering to his servant Elijah with, with an amazing patience and grace and, and reassuring Elijah that he hasn't forgotten his people, that Elijah's work isn't in vain, and he wasn't at all overlooking the injustice that Elijah was facing. So then here, here's the theme for this chapter in this sermon. The Lord reassures his servant who longs for justice and who longs for Satan's kingdom to crumble. And we'll see that God does that in five ways, which we'll see in the text before us. Now this text, of course, follows right on the heels of chapter 18, the contest on Mount Carmel, which we saw a few weeks ago. And we saw that that chapter ended with with what seemed like a positive note. The people confessing the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And so it seemed like the tables had finally turned against Baal and against Jezebel, the wicked queen. Even King Ahab was listening to Elijah. Rain was returning to Israel, and with the rain, God's blessing. But then Ahab goes to tell Jezebel about everything that happened on the mountain, And you start to realize that Jezebel is the real force here behind the Baal worship. Ahab was just concerned about rain. He figured maybe Baal would get it, but then when he saw Yahweh got it, he was was okay with that. 
He's obviously guilty. He's, he's listening to his wife Jezebel. He is king after all. He has responsibility to do the right thing. But he seems quite content with any God. He doesn't really care what God it is as long as the people are happy and you're getting rain. And so he never even interfered with the killing of the 400 prophets of Baal after the contest on Mount Carmel. He didn't really seem to care. And so you get the impression he's quite okay with this new turn of affairs. Okay, now the people are worshiping God. That's great. At least we get rain. And so he goes to tell Jezebel about what had happened, maybe hoping that she would also be at least not too angry because, after all, there's rain. At least the famine is over. But you you realize in verse 2 of this chapter that Jezebel is immediately furious. It says in verse 2, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, one of the prophets of Baal, by this time tomorrow. This is such an honest picture of sin, isn't it? You, you might have expected Jezebel now to be faced with the evidence, to, see the, to, to have heard about the fire of God coming down from heaven. And maybe finally you'd think she would give up her cause. She would admit that the Lord is, is the only true God. We tend to believe that if only people will see the right evidence, then they'll finally be convinced and repent. But Jezebel wasn't convinced And she didn't repent. She hardened herself. She was furious with Elijah for what he did to the prophets of Baal. This was her program. The the Baal worship was her, her baby, so to speak. This was her kingdom that she was building. And from her perspective, how dare this upstart prophet Elijah go and kill her prophets? One commentator put it this way. I thought it was well phrased. He said, Yahweh's fire came from heaven and consumed everything except for the blindness in Jezebel's mind and the recalcitrance in her will. But then isn't that exactly the nature of sin? And so Elijah has every reason to be afraid. There's some debate because the text says that Elijah was afraid. There's some debate over the word. There's different manuscripts. Some just say Elijah saw and ran. Some say he was afraid and ran. The two words are spelled very, very similarly in the Hebrew. But whether Elijah was genuinely afraid or whether he just saw what Jezebel was about to do and took off running... Verse 3 tells us that he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah. And then even once he got there, he left his servant behind and went a day further into the wilderness. So you have to understand, he started in the northern kingdom. He fled to Judah, an entirely different country at that point, so he should be safe. But even there, he left his servant behind and went a day further into the wilderness to get as far away from Jezebel's reach as possible. Now, let's just assume Elijah was afraid, which seems to be what the text, the, the most of the manuscripts will say. And a lot of preachers and commentators have been really hard on Elijah for being afraid. And I guess there's, maybe there's something comforting about being able to talk about Elijah's weaknesses and his failures. But I think we should be careful before criticizing Elijah in this text. Some commentators especially are really unfair with Elijah, saying that in this chapter you find Elijah just feeling sorry for himself and making excuses for himself and getting all wrapped up in himself. But if you, if you stop and think about this, you, you, should wait before, you should wait before laying a heavy hand on Elijah. 
First of all, he had every reason to believe that, Eli- that Jezebel really would kill him, and probably in the worst way imag- imaginable. She'd already killed hundreds of prophets of Yahweh before, and-, and he was easily at the top of the most wanted list in Israel. Secondly, God never told him to stick around. He had every right to flee. There's sometimes this wrong thinking that, you know, if we really trust God, we won't flee persecution. We'll just present ourselves to the authorities and, and get ready to die. But, but of course, that's, that's crazy. God never tells us we, we have to go and present ourselves to the authorities for death. Of course, we should be willing to die for him if that's the, the situation God has placed us in. Of course, we should never deny God if that's the position we're in. But that doesn't mean that when Christians are persecuted, they have to go and present themselves to die. If, if, if that's the case, they have every right to flee and to do everything that they can to protect themselves and their families. So we can hardly be, it's hardly fair to Elijah if we're hard on him for, for fleeing. Uh, and that's especially true from our comfortable vantage point in Canada where this kind of thing is, is hard to even imagine. And, and let's also not forget that Elijah had the courage to stand up to, to Ahab right to his face. He's the king of Israel. And to stand before all the people on the mountain also hoping that God would send fire down from heaven. His life was on the line on, on that bet. Thirdly, Elijah was telling the truth in this chapter, in verses 10 and 14, where he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord of hosts. Some people say, well, Elijah's being all wrapped up in himself and very self-centered and, and arrogant. But we have every reason to believe that Elijah was telling the truth. He had been very jealous for the Lord of hosts. And so we should be careful before accusing him of being arrogant or self-centered in this chapter. Fourth, Elijah was also, for the most part, correct uh, when he said that for, about what he said about the people of Israel, that they've broken your covenant, they've broken down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword. Now, I grant he is a bit of a selective memory here. He's forgotten some of the good that, that God has accomplished. And, and he was wrong that he was the only prophet left. But he might not have even known about the others. And overall, his assessment about Israel is, is very correct. So we have no reason to judge Elijah for taking this journey off to the wilderness of Judah. And, and when the Lord asks him later in the chapter, what are you doing here, Elijah? We don't need to read that as a rebuke from God. It might just as well be an invitation from God for Elijah to pour out his heart before him. This isn't a chapter about God's anger against Elijah. We don't, sh- we don't see God in this chapter showing really anything except mercy to Elijah and compassion to his servant. Now, with all that said, it's certainly true that Elijah had fallen into despair or despondency. He, he begs God to take his life. And really, you get the impression he was done. And so as a result of that despair, it's true, Elijah is really unable to remember, to recall any of the good that God had accomplished through him. He was so overwhelmed with his failures and, and the setbacks that he had experienced that he, he forgets all of the good that God had also done. He has lost hope, and as a result, he's also lost sight of, of his mission 
And it's good to understand, brothers and sisters, that this can happen to Christians um, and even to, to the Christians who are, are the most devoted and dedicated to the cause of Christ, people who are pouring themselves out in service to God. Despair can set in despite all of the best successes and, and triumphs against all of the evidence that we've seen of God working in our lives and, and through our lives. Despair can easily happen. It can happen to anyone who's been fighting that, that, that uphill battle against belief and resistance and sin and stubbornness. And especially if those people are confronted by a level of evil that most of us perhaps won't encounter. So for anyone who's calling Sorry, who's following God's calling to engage in that war against sin in themselves and also in, in whatever sphere of influence God has given them. Burnout is a real possibility for Christians. And, and that despair and even depression that can set in as a result, that can be paralyzing and it can take a long time to recover from. We've seen this, in fact, in some of our own missionaries. So in a state of what seems to be total despondency, Elijah finds himself seeking refuge alone in the wilderness. Initially, it didn't seem like he was heading anywhere in particular, just getting away from Jezebel. He just wanted to die, to get as far away from Jezebel and die on his own with the Lord. And so as he was in the wilderness, it says he sat down under a broom tree, which would be one of those those solitary trees that just grow up in the middle of the desert. He sat, out, so he sat under one of those trees and he begged God to go and take his life. He says, it's enough. Take my life, O Lord, for I am no better than my father's. And you can see the frustration that, that's so common with those who do suffer from depression, that self-loathing. He says, I'm no better than, than my father's. He's wondering, what's the use? I'm as, I'm as sinful as anybody else. Who am I kidding? What's God going to accomplish through me? He's lost sight of the fact that, that really what he was doing was a calling from God. It wasn't dependent on how worthy, how good he himself was. It was never because he was better than anyone else. So it says he lay down and slept. But as he slept, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And here's the first way then that God reassures his broken, his despairing servant. Elijah looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And with that little meal, God shows his continued care and provision for Elijah. He wasn't going to abandon his servant, no matter how much Elijah felt like he had already done so. He cares for him like a mother might care for a sick child. He brings him food. And I believe that this food is also meant to serve as a reminder of God's care in the past. There's a specific mention of a cake and a jar. And it looks like these are intended to be reminders of how God had provided through Elijah in the past. You think of the widow who's, who came to Elijah with just a cake because Elijah had asked her for a cake and, and, and God replenished the jar of oil. So, so these might be pictures also of God's provision in the past. He had cared for Elijah before and he was certainly able to do it again. Elijah seems to have lost sight of all the good that God had done through him. His, his vision was clouded by everything that seems to have gone wrong. 
And so the cake and the bread were not only a gift to Elijah's body, but also a reminder for his soul, visual reminders of God's care in the past. So it says Elijah ate and drank, and then he lay down again. So he still wasn't ready to get up and begin following God's orders again. But we see God was very patient with Elijah. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Now let me just say a word about that, about that journey. This is the first time we hear about a specific journey or destination. Uh, it's not clear if Elijah had been heading towards Mount Sinai. That's where it says he was going. Mount Horeb is, is the same as Mount Sinai. And it's not clear if he was going there right from the beginning, right from when Jezebel said what she said, or if he decided to go there while he was sitting under the broom tree. But anyways, at some point he decides he's going to go to Mount Sinai. And the reason he went there could only be because Mount Sinai was the mountain of God's covenant. And so he's coming there to bring a covenant complaint against God's people, to pour out his accusations against them. And so when Elijah came to Mount Sinai, he came to a cave, and it says he lodged there. And the word of God came to him, saying, Elijah, what are you doing here? Again, we need to, uh, sorry, we don't need to see this automatically as a rebuke. It can just as well be an invitation for Elijah to pour out his heart before God. And so that's exactly what Elijah does in verse 10. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, I only am left, and they seek my life also to take it away. Now if you're thinking through this, you can tell right away this is a covenant complaint against Israel. It's an accusation against the people of God. He says, they have forsaken your covenant. And so it's a cry then for justice. He says they've, they've killed your prophets. It's a cry for God to intervene against Israel. The powers of Satan were too strong for Elijah to resist. And even after the event on, on Mount Carmel, Elijah had done everything imaginable to turn the people back to God. And if anything was capable of doing that, surely the contest on, on Mount uh, on Mount Carmel ought to have done that, and yet it turns out the, the people's confession didn't amount to anything because Ahab remained king and Jezebel remained queen in Israel, and he was on the most wanted list. And so, God, and so that's his complaint to God, and then God says in verse 11, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And as it stood there, it says, Behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Now, I know it says the Lord was not in the wind, but certainly the Lord was behind the wind. He was certainly acting in that wind. And we'll look at that in a second. And so this is God's second reassurance then to to Elijah. He shows Elijah his breathtaking power. You can imagine how terrifying it would have been for Elijah as he stood at the entrance of that cave on, the Mount, on, on Mount Sinai watching gale force winds tearing up rocks and, and whipping them up in the air and smashing them into pieces. Elijah must have stood there feeling like the entire mountain was going to be ripped up before his face. But as terrifying as that certainly would have been for Elijah, 
it also must have been in, in some way comforting. This would have been exactly what Elijah wanted to see. God's horrible, awful, terrible power to whip up rocks, to destroy, to act injustice. That's a vision of God that Elijah needed. He needed to be reminded of, of God's power. And it's a vision that we need too in a, in a world where God is not worshipped as he ought to be, where justice seems to be trampled on, where wicked people seem to get away year after year with their wickedness. We need to be reminded that this is still the God that we worship. He's capable of unleashing awesome, terrible uh, destruction like this. And Elijah certainly needed that reminder of God's power. As he saw justice being violated in, in the kingdom, God's prophets being killed, God's covenant being profaned, Elijah needed this reminder of God's horrible power to be reassured that God is not powerless against injustice. He's not absent either. He's only biding his time. That justice will come and it will be terrible. So first there was a wind and then after that came an earthquake and after that came a fire, like the same fire you might imagine that Moses saw when he was on that same mountain long before. And yet our text says the Lord was not in any of those things, which is to say uh, he was behind those things, but he didn't speak in them. He didn't appear in the midst of them. With Moses, he had spoken out of the fire. But here he stayed silent all through the wind and the fire and the earthquake. And so if Elijah was expecting God to speak out of that wrath, out of the storm, he would have been surprised and and perhaps puzzled. Instead, there came, literally in the Hebrew, a a thin silence. That's the the phrase it uses in the the Hebrew. And and then it says, the voice of God. Our text translates this as a a low whisper, but it doesn't have to be a whisper. It just says a voice. So it might have just been a normal conversational sort of voice. Well, what was the purpose then of this thin silence? After the storm, why did Elijah go to great pains to to remind us or to let us know that the Lord was not in any of the other things, but only in that thin silence? What's the point here? Well, I think the point here is that God is reminding Elijah of something that he needed to remember. Even though God could intervene in the world by means of wind and earthquake and fire and all kinds of catastrophic judgment and destroy all of his enemies in an instant, God could do all of those things. He showed Elijah he could accomplish that. Yet, all we need, this is the reminder for Elijah, all we need is God's voice, God's word, God's promise. That ought to be sufficient for us, even in a still silence. And God's prophet, especially Elijah, certainly needed to, to remember that. If, if God has promised that he will tear down the kingdom of Satan, then it's as good as done. Because, Satan, because Satan's kingdom cannot stand before God's word. That's a promise that comes from God, and it's just as sure as wind and earthquake and fire. God's word is still sufficient. 
He shouldn't need to appear in wind and earthquake and fire for us to believe in him and trust in him, to have full confidence in his word. If he's promised that he will build his kingdom as Christ promised and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, then he will get that job done. He will tear down Satan's kingdom. Well, when Elijah heard that voice, he wrapped his face in his cloak, afraid, presumably, that he would, he would see the face of God. And he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. So he, so he must have retreated back to the, the, the back of the cave during that wind and fire and earthquake. And then as he stood there again in the front of the cave, God spoke to him with the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah, you see, brought the same complaint before God. I've been very jealous for the Lord of hosts and for your people, Israel, have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, only I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Well, this time, God responds with a command for, for, for Elijah. Verse 15, the, the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. So, so notice that's, that's up in the northern kingdom again, even, even further. It's like the, the northernmost point in Israel. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. So here was God's word for Elijah. Here was God's response to Elijah's complaint. Remember, Elijah came with a covenant accusation against Israel, asking for God to judge his people Israel. And that's now what God promises to do. It wouldn't come through earthquake and wind and fire, but instead through means that maybe were less spectacular, but certainly were not less devastating and terrible. God would raise up political forces to bring down the kingdom of Satan in Israel, to bring down the kingdom of Ahab and Jezebel, and not only that, but really the entire kingdom of Israel. In fact, maybe this was even more judgment than what Elijah had been asking for. Not only Ahab and Jezebel would be taken down, the entire kingdom of Israel would be destroyed. It reminds you of, of the prophet Habakkuk. If you know that book well, he, he cries out to God for justice against all the injustice that happened in Israel. And God said, oh, I'm, I'm coming with justice. I'm sending the Babylonians and they will come. And, and that was more judgment than Habakkuk had asked for. And, and he even turns around and says to God, will you really accomplish justice by means of those horrible people? So it's even more judgment than he had asked for. And, and that might have been the case very well for Elijah as well. But this was a judgment that was a long time coming. And the storm that Elijah had seen was like a seal upon God's word. His promise to destroy the kingdom. His word then is all that we need to live by faith. And to stay engaged in the fight against the kingdom of Satan. Well let me bring this 
home for each of you. In our own day, we're also waiting for Jesus Christ to fulfill his promise, where he said he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not overcome it. He's promised he'll put all of his enemies under his feet. He's promised that the kingdom of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that certainly has been happening for the last 2,000 years. But it still has so far also to go. And, and, just, and there are times, like our own day really here in Canada, where we look around at the country we live in and we see that the kingdom of Satan still stands so strong and it seems to even be growing against the kingdom of God, at least in our country. And in the last decades, the church's reach seems to be retreating even further. The government grows ever more opposed to God's justice. And materialism seems to be creeping not only through, not only rampant through the, through the, the country, but even creeping into the church. And so we might be tempted, as many Christians are tempted to do, to, to throw up our hands and say, well, this, this whole place is going to hell in a handbasket. It just seems to get worse and worse. The end must be near. Maybe Jesus will just come soon and rescue us from, from, this terrible, from these terrible times. But is that what Christ has called you to do in this time? And, and though we often forget it, Christ gave his word to the disciples that he would build his kingdom here on the earth. And that kingdom building work is not finished yet. His church has much growing still to do. And each of us then have a calling from God within our own spheres that God has given us to labor for that kingdom. Are we then despairing like Elijah might have been despairing, assuming that that, that our country, which Christ has claimed for himself, is, is too far gone to be saved. Are we despairing already, and that without even having made the same sacrifices and suffering that, that Elijah had made? <clears throat> and, and, and if that's the case, that that's what we're doing, what do we do then with Christ's promise that he said he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not overcome that church-building work? Do we count Christ's words as sufficient? And so we see here God reassures his servant by reminding him of his provision in the past, by showing him his breathtaking power, by pointing to the sufficiency of his word, and fourth, now also by promising him that he was already and would continue to preserve his church, even if Elijah couldn't see it anymore. That's in verse 18. He says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah's accusation against Israel was correct, but he was wrong that he was the only one left. God was still preserving a remnant. And he promises that after that storm of judgment to purify the country, after that storm passes, he would still continue preserving a remnant of his people. It's true, the community of true believers was was very small in that time, almost seemingly non-existent, but it was still there. The Holy Spirit was still working. And together with God's word of, of promise, 
That was all the reason that Elijah needed to keep on hoping that God would preserve his church. It's easy for us to become cynical of the church, especially if we've been confronted with, with the depths of evil that, that some perhaps have not even seen. And we can start to believe that God, is God really working at all in the church? But, but God was working in Elijah's time, even though Elijah couldn't see it. And it's true also in our time as well. In that time, there were still thousands who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. Thousands then who, who loved the Lord with all their heart. And really, there are surely millions of them in our day today spread throughout the world. And with Christ reigning and Christ building his church, there are at least millions and many, many more coming to love the Lord with all their heart. We can't let our cynicism or our despair rob us of that comfort. God was working then with only 7,000. He's certainly working today with millions in human hearts, in lives, in homes, and even in communities, and really even in countries. Since Christ's ascension 2,000 years ago then, his kingdom has only been growing and growing. And we need the eyes to be able to see that. Now, notice at this point that, that this revelation from God not only shook Elijah up, having witnessed God's, God's breathtaking power, but it also seems to have brought him, at least in part, back to perspective. God was, was incredibly patient and gracious with Elijah and had given him again now not only the confidence that he needed, uh, not only the confidence that he needed, but also the confidence in, in God's promise in the future that God would bring about the judgment and the restoration of the church that God had promised to bring. And so we read that Elijah arose and went to Abel Mahola, which is where Elisha lived. And, and understand, this was right back in the heart of Ahab and Jezebel's territory. It was only some 30 kilometers from, from Samaria, the capital city. And so to all those people who might be bashing Elijah for his cowardice, uh, imagine what courage this must have required while the hunt for Elijah was still in full force. And there he encounters Elisha. And this, this encounter with Elisha is really beautiful and comforting. Elijah found him plowing in the field, and as he passed by him, he cast his cloak on him. So he didn't actually anoint him like God said. He cast his cloak on him, but it made the same point. Elijah was, was then calling him to follow him and to eventually, obviously, take over his role. And Elisha, it says, left the oxen and ran after Elijah. He was eager then to take up that calling that Elijah was done carrying. But first he, he just says, let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, which is a, a very reasonable request if, if you think about it. But you notice Elijah doesn't respond well to that request. He still has that cynicism. He still doubts that God is working in other people besides himself. He clearly doesn't think much of this young man, Elijah, who wants to turn around and, and take the time to say goodbye to his father and mother. And so he takes this request as an indication that, that Elijah is not ready, or Elisha is not ready for, for this, this calling. 
But then you look at what the, the young man Elisha did. He threw a feast for his family, and he took the oxen that were plowing in his field, that's his means of income, and he slaughtered them right there, and he even used their yokes for the fire. So he completely destroyed his means of living. It was a definitive and, and irreversible commitment to go and follow Elijah. So no matter what Elijah might have thought of him, Elisha was ready to take up that calling. And this is then one more reassurance from God. His unseen and perhaps unnoticed preparations for the future that he works in the hearts of the next generation. And this is an amazing thing to reflect on for us as as we prepare to witness also uh, the baptism of a covenant child. While everything else was, was happening, God was working in the hearts of the next generation behind the scenes, even though Elijah couldn't see it. He was preparing the young man, Elisha, for his calling to take up the next chapter of that war for Christ's kingdom. And this should be encouraging then to us, and particularly to the older generation. Maybe, maybe the older members among us are, are tempted to think, what is this world ever going to come to? And they might look at the, the youngest generation and think, what can God possibly do with these millennials but as Elijah was, was pouring himself out for God's kingdom, and he was completely poured out, reached, he had reached the end of, of his ministry, and he was wondering how, the, how is the mission ever going to be accomplished in, in this next generation. In the meantime, we see God working in the heart of that young man, Elisha, preparing him for his calling, which would be at least as great as Elijah's. So we can never, ever despair of God's purposes and God's goals because we have no idea what he might be working in the background, behind the scenes, what kinds of people he might be preparing for the next chapter in in the building of his kingdom. It's unbelief to think that our society is too far gone to be saved, that it's, that it's all just going to hell. We have no idea what God might be working in the next generation. Already in the last decade, we've seen the rise of, of a movement called the Young Restless Reformed, uh, an uprising of, of young people from all sorts of different traditions, from evangelical traditions and mainline traditions, passionate about the doctrines of grace in our own canons of Dort, committed to preaching, committed to carrying on God's mission in our country and around the world. So an attitude of despair is ultimately an attitude of unbelief. God said his glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. There's no excuse then for pessimism. Why should we stop praying for this country? Why should we stop praying for a place like North Korea? Do we really believe that God will, will, will not ever open those borders? That God will never ever change that country? There was a time when people despaired in the same way about the Soviet Union. And, and then the Berlin Wall came down. And then they still looked at the Soviet Union and, and the prevailing atheism in that country, thinking, how can God ever penetrate into that country? And then young, committed, faithful missionaries began working there. And Jesus had sheep there who would hear his voice. And there's a growing church movement. You see the same in China. And we can certainly pray for the same in a place like North Korea. 
The future of the kingdom is being worked out even as we speak, as God is working in the hearts of that next generation, perhaps in the hearts of some of the little children here among us. They are going to carry the work of God forward in the next chapter. Does it seem impossible or unlikely Do you know how God might use them? What things God might already be preparing them for? Things that he's going to bring them through? Things they're going to have to endure to prepare them for the work that God is calling them for? So then, brothers and sisters, the charge to you is this. Do the work that God has tasked you to do in the sphere that God has given you. Remember what God has done in the past. Consider again his breathtaking power to accomplish everything we're praying for in an instant, if that was his plan. And then trust him to do the work that he has promised he will do, because he's given his word that he will do it. And that ought to be as certain for us as if fire or earthquake or anything else came from heaven. Christ is reigning on high. He will put all his enemies under his feet. And and don't lose sight either then of the church that does exist, the hearts in which God is already at work, the, the people that he has preserved and will continue to preserve and even grow. The gates of hell will not overcome Christ's church. Even though Satan might ravage the church, and even though the kingdom of darkness around us might look to us a thousand times stronger than God's kingdom, and sometimes even it might seem that way within the church, recognize Christ is already at work in a thousand ways that you cannot even see, in the hearts also of some of the youngest members among us, preparing them to do great things for his kingdom. So take his promises and believe them. He will build his church. The earth will be filled with his glory as the waters cover the sea. Amen.